Welcome to YB Voices. For this Asia Pacific series, we've brought together three members of the IB authorization team to discuss the process of authorization across programs and tips and strategies for schools engaged in the candidate phase. I'm your host, Steve Wishart, IBWS Manager for Australasia. First, I'll introduce Manita Sen, who's the Authorisation Manager for PYP. Welcome, Manita. Thanks, Steve. I've got Margot Tidings, who's the Authorisation Manager for MYP. Welcome, Margot. Thanks, Steve. And Avi Nanda, who is the Authorisation Manager for DP and CP. Welcome, Avi. Thanks very much, Steve. Glad to be here. Thanks, team. And I was wondering if you could provide an overview of the roles and responsibilities as being part of the authorization team. Margot, could you just outline some of the roles and responsibilities that you have? Yeah, absolutely. So the three of us are program relationship managers, meaning that we guide schools who are in the candidate phase of their IV journey through their candidacy. So we really are their support from the moment they submit the application for candidacy to the moment that they actually get that stamp of authorization from the IB. So we stand by their side through each phase and provide them with logistical support and also program guidance and process support as well. So at really any phase of their journey, we are their touch point at the IB. Fantastic. So a really important role in terms of schools becoming authorised with the IB. Manita, if I could ask you first, if a school was interested in an IB program, what would be their first steps? Well, the, the first point really is to go to our website and that's www.ibo.org and we have a specific area on the website becoming an IB world school so that's a good point to start because you'll find all the resources you need there sample documents also you can register your interest in becoming an IB world school there and that will trigger a response from one of our development managers so we have a team called the development team whose job it is to exclusively support schools in the candidate stage and once you register that you're interested, they'll be in touch and they will really guide and support you through that process. The other thing is really a feasibility study. And I think schools that do an in-depth feasibility study start strong in the program because they're really just looking to see, is I be a good match for my school? There may be many wonderful things happening in your school. And you might want to connect those to the IB framework. There may be natural connections. So I think it's good to do that feasibility study, which would include the head of school attending a category one training. And per program, there are specific trainings that you need to attend. That's also a requirement. But that gives you a good idea of the program requirements and an overview of the process so that you know what's expected. So that would be my advice for a starting point. Thanks, Manita. Just while we're on that, when does the authorization team first engage with a school? The moment that a school completes their application for candidacy and presses that submit button, that moves them over to our team and then right. we support them. We take over from the development team and support them through the reading of the application, the approval of their candidacy, all through consultancy and the authorization process right up to the point where they actually are authorized and then they move on to another team which is your team, the IB World Schools Department. And Avi, what do those initial 
communications consist of? When a school first comes on board with your team, what type of communications are you having with those schools? What type of discussions? What type of things are you sharing with schools at that very initial point of contact with the authorisation team? At the very initial stage, when we're processing the candidacy application, there might be some further evidence that we require from the school. And we generally go through our systems for this. So if there are some, maybe some documents the school hasn't quite provided, or we're not clear on certain points, as Monita mentioned, for example, it could be a training question, or it could be something to do with the legal status document of the school, then we would connect with them via the system as, as well through an email question about, could you just support us by giving us some more ev evidence? Once the school becomes a candidate school and it actually meets all our requirements, there are two letters that are generated, again, through the system. One is a welcome letter that basically lets the school know that they are a candidate school and that their consultancy process actually starts from just then when the letter reaches them. And then there's a second letter that actually introduces the consultant and lets them know about, you know, the different processes that are going to take place during mm. that time of that period of consultancy all the way through to the application. So those are the letters that go through the system. The program relationship managers will also connect with the school directly, either via email or through different platforms. We have a platform here in Asia Pacific called Basecap, which we just use to connect the consultant and the school together with ourselves so that we're able to support as required and just make sure that everything's going as smoothly as possible through the entire authorization process. I'm interested having the group here in trying to understand what are the key indicators for a successful authorization process in this early phase when you're first talking to these schools. What do you think of some of the indicators of success that you see with those schools that are doing everything correctly? Margot? I think one of the early indicators of success is just communication between the school and the consultant and also mm. the school with their relationship manager, making sure that they're engaging in the materials that we have advised them and also having conversations with their consultant from the moment they become a candidate school on setting themselves up for a successful consultancy. So what that might look like is having an initial meeting right away, also establishing your authorization timeline really early on. What are your goals for being authorized and what is your timeline for that? So initially, we really suggest thinking of when you want to be authorized by and then planning your timeline backwards from there. So those are some key indicators and usually schools who are able to establish that timeline and then build their action plan in accordance with that timeline are really able to set goals and proceed through the authorization process pretty smoothly. Manita, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, there are a number of milestones. We called them the authorization milestones that schools work through. So it's good to keep those in mind. And I echo what Margot said about the timeline. I think that's it's really important. Also a solid PD plan, professional development is important to keep your school community updated on program implementation. So not just IB workshops, also a lot of internal professional development mm -hmm. that coordinators can run themselves. And Avi? Yeah, well, I think um, it's pretty much been covered, but just that a measure of success is just to see how often the schools are communicating with the consultant and ensuring that that information is being provided correctly and in accordance with our requirements. 
What is also good to see is that a school is already planning, for example, for its consultation visit. So there would maybe some document sharing that happens before that process with the consultant. The remote consultant obviously will be guiding the school through all the processes, including the documentation. So just to make sure that that's moving on smoothly and that the school is actually planning for a consultation mm. visit and is mutually advantageous both to the consultant as well as to the school. In general, if that's happening, you know, within the first few months, months it just tends to build for success particularly in the diploma program and in the career related program just because schools do want to be authorized before they can start teaching yeah. I mean they have to be so as a result if you know that that consultation visit is coming along well there's more confidence that the school will meet its preferred timeline for authorization. You mentioned consultants before when's a consultant appointed to your school and what's considered when you're appointing a consultant to a particular school and the consultant is actually more or less in place before the school becomes a candidate school uh -huh. because those two processes go simultaneously the moment that a school applies for candidacy planning for the consultant is already happening so as a result once a school becomes a candidate school, they do get that letter that I mentioned a little bit before that actually states who their consultant is going to be. And if they don't get it then, they will get it within the first month of the school attaining candidacy. So then it's up to the school and the consultant really to start working with, together as soon as they want, as soon as they can, to ensure that that process moves smoothly. Manita, can you talk about matching a consultant to a particular school? Uh, yeah, we try very hard to match someone who will have an understanding of the context and that could be to do with the type of curriculum offered, but often it can also be to do with the languages in the school or perhaps the school has a particular focus area. So we try to pick a consultant who will be a good match and understand the school's context. Obviously, all of our consultants are trained and are experienced educators, so making a match isn't difficult. We have a lot of consultants who are excellent at what they do. Because obviously the consultants have a lot of knowledge and experience and so forth to be in that position. How would a school best use that knowledge and experience of a consultant to support them in their program implementation? Margot? I think it's important for schools to establish a communication plan with their consultants from day one. So what will that look like? Is it weekly or bi-weekly check-ins? and how will they communicate? So again, Avi already mentioned that we use Basecamp in Asia Pacific, but some schools prefer to use emails or other types of communication. So um, establishing what that communication model is going to look like, and then also establishing expectations and realities of what that communication will look like between the school and the consultant. I think also consultants are really excellent at reviewing school documents and providing feedback. So whatever documents the school has available right away and then building off of that, that's the real work of preparing for the application for authorization that's done between the consultant and the school. Manita, do you have anything to add there? Echoing Margot's points, I think context is really important. And as a school, you want to help your consultant understand your school's context as much as possible and your goals for authorization. So the more information you can provide your consultant with that, I think is really, really helpful. And in turn, the consultant will provide you with recommendations and advice to stay on track and meet those requirements. So my main advice is use your time wisely. 
consultants provide 20 hours of remote support per year. So that can go very quickly. We use that time wisely. And if I can just add Steve Avi here, that it's a great idea if the schools are just looking at that guide to school authorization, which they have for their specific programs, it sets into place the progress the school has to go through. So if they're looking at those milestones that Monita mentioned earlier, and just thinking through when they would like to plan, just as Margot said, it really helps the conversation with the consultant. One of the things that the consultant is going to do is to be looking at the initial documentation and looking at the school's application for candidates for example, and advising on how the school would need to move forward based on some of the recommendations that are made there. But at the same time, if the school is proactive and is looking at that themselves and also working with their teacher teams and looking at the PD and so on, that really helps to get the consultation going. What reporting takes place throughout candidacy and how do schools best use these reports to support their program implementation? There are two reports that the consultant will provide the school throughout the consultancy process. One happens just after the consultant visits the school for a two-day visit, so it's really a report of progress up to that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other one is at the end of the process and the consultancy. So really these reports focus on the practices that have to be in place for authorization. So it really helps the school with prioritizing And they're based on a traffic light system, nice and simple. So anything that has a red or a yellow indicator on it indicates to the school that they need to address that quite quickly through their action plan. And we encourage schools to have smart goals in their action plan to make sure they're very specific and measurable, realistic, attainable, and that they are time bound as well. Schools really, I think, when they're looking at their reports, need to look at this whole process as researchers and think about what evidence can we provide to the consultant, and also this will be later to a visiting team as well, that these practices are in place or in progress. So I think coming in with that mindset early and thinking of how you evidence things is really helpful. Yeah. Avi, is it the same for DP and CP? Yes, indeed. We also have the two reports. Every program does. One is immediately after the consultation visit, as uh, as Monita said, and one is after, once the school has had some time to act on the recommendations. And then the consultant will basically look to see that the school is in readiness to apply for authorization. That's when the consultant signs off. So yes, bearing in mind that there are particular practices that must be in place at the time of authorization. It's great if the school is able to provide the evidence, just as Monita said, and also act on any recommendations that the school will make. The consultant reports basically focus on those matters, those areas that must be in place in order Mm. to ensure successful authorization. So, you know, focusing on those and then planning for those areas that need to be in progress are the two things that the school would be looking at and they would be able to then gauge from the reports uh, where they are and where they need to go further. And Margot, MYP is the same type of yeah, process? Yeah, exactly. Exact same process. So really paying attention, as Monita mentioned, to that stoplight system, yellow, reds, and yep. greens, especially for the yellow and red areas, paying attention to the next steps that the consultant would outline for the school and using that as a launching point to improve or document the evidence, you know, as Avi and Monita both said, without the evidence, there's no way that the IB can verify that that practice is actually in place. So really thinking about it, as Monita said, from a researcher's perspective. A red would mean that the practice isn't in place and that a lot of additional work needs to be engaged. 
Exactly. So a red would mean immediate action is required right. in that practice. And a yellow might mean that the practice is partially in place, but further action is required. Green means you are good to go. We've been through the consultancy process and we've received our reports and so forth. And the school has acted upon any recommendations that arise within those reports. When is a school ready to be authorised? Arby? Um, well, there's a step in between. Once the consultant signs off on the second report that we mentioned earlier, this actually indicates that the school has met the requirements for those practices at that time. And then the school is left on its own with support from us in the IB to apply for authorization. And that application is exactly like their application for candidacy, but a little bit more. We also require to see some further documentation in the DP. We also need to see course outlines and so on. And it will be the same for PYP and MYP, where we need to see a little bit more to do with curriculum during that application. The application, once submitted, is then reviewed, and that's reviewed by experienced IB educators who feed back to the IB as well as to the school on the progress at that point. The course outlines or other schemes of work, etc., will also be read by these readers and the feedback will be provided on them. So once we know that, again, the school has met the requirements based on its documentation, with regard to the practices that have to be in place at authorization, the IB will either ask for further evidence if they need it, or they'll say, we are, you're good to go for a verification visit. So, I mean, to your question, Steve, there are actually two or three steps that still need to take place before the school can be ready to be authorized. Manita, have you got anything to add there? Yeah, we work on a readiness model with schools. So we come from a position that schools own their process and that they have worked with their consultant and planned that so that they know best when they are ready and when they will be ready to submit that application and plan the verification visit. So the indicators of that are obviously that you do have a report that verifies as well and confirms that you have those practices in place and that you again uh, have met those milestones. So there are a couple of things that schools have to check, like a bit of a checklist before they actually apply, checking that their fees are up to date, that their practices are in place and that they've had the visit. And for MYP and PYP, they need to have completed a year of trial implementation in the program. Okay, so leading up, you mentioned the verification visit. How might a school prepare for a verification visit? Margot? As we've mentioned throughout this podcast, that evidence is the key piece here. So once a school submits their application for authorization with all of their physical evidence, again, as Avi mentioned, that'll be reviewed and feedback will be provided. And as a result of the application for authorization, there might be some matters to be addressed that the school will need to provide evidence for before we can proceed with the verification visit process. Mm -hmm. But once all of those matters to be addressed have been closed, and the evidence has been deemed sufficient, we'll move into the verification visit process. And at that point, a verification visit team will be assigned. And very similar to the consultation process, we will expect the school to work directly with the visiting team to prepare for that visit, setting an agenda, and making sure that their teachers are prepared to have conversations with the visiting team, their board, their parents, their students, about their authorization process and what the, all the great things they've done to prepare for authorization. Abby? 
from the DP and CP perspective, one of the things that the school would need to prepare possibly is just to review all the documentation that's come through from their application for authorization. In the case of both these programs, it would be the course outlines as subject matter experts would be feeding back on the course outlines. So making sure that the school has shared that with the teachers and that the teachers have responded to any feedback recommendations um, and ensuring that the teachers are then able both to speak to the course outlines that they've developed as well as to any changes that they may have had to do in because of the recommendations. So really, I mean, if you were to think about it across programs, it's just to go back and review the entire process and all the recommendations that have been made through the process, the advice that's been given, and making sure that the school is as ready as possible for that visit so that there are good conversations happening with the visiting team and that everyone feels part of a process and, you know, there's some real enhanced experience there. I'm wondering what happens at a verification visit. We've talked about leading up to a very important part of the candidate phase, I suppose. What actually happens during a verification visit, Manita? Yeah, to build on the last question as well, I think it's important that all members of your learning community are prepared for what will happen. So it's a good idea mm. to have a plan of how you're going to let them know what to expect so it's not a surprise. So the visit itself consists of two verification visitors attending the school for two days. And really what they want to see is the school as it functions normally. So this is not a time to put on a special show or do anything out of the ordinary. They really just want that snapshot of what the school looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. And their job, these two visitors who are experienced IB educators, they all work in IB schools themselves. So they have that empathetic point of view and perspective. They've been through the process themselves. They really will meet with all members of the learning community. So students, parents, all teachers who support the program, the leadership and the governing body as well. And through their interactions and observations in the school, they're looking to gather evidence that verifies the school's claim that it's ready. So yeah. really this process is set up for success and there should be no surprises for you because you've been through those checkpoints in the consultancy process. And now that's why it's called the verification visit rather than the authorization visit because it just verifies the things that have already happen. And so you can expect the visitors to be in classrooms, to be interacting with students, to looking at uh, student work as well, so that they can find various points of data to support a report and say, yes, we agree this school is ready for authorization. Anything different there, Margot, for MYP? No, it's very much the same process. I would just add that as Monita said, the team is there to verify all the great things that the school has done to prepare. So yeah. I like to tell schools that it's really a fact-finding mission that the team is on. When they're at the school, they're not there to, as a catch ya, um effort, they're yeah. really yeah. there to, to see all the great things the school has done to prepare and also to capture that school's unique context and see what makes them a unique IB school. So very much a similar process for MYP and PYP. I don't know, Avi, if you have anything specific to add for DP and CP. 
Well, for DP and CP, everything applies that Monita and Margot have talked about, but also there is that area where the verification visit team will be looking to see that teachers are prepared for the delivery of their subjects. Unlike NYP and BYP, the school cannot start teaching until it's authorized for both these two programs. And as a result, we have full confidence in the subject matter expertise of the teachers. That's a given. So they're experienced teachers, but they just might be new to teaching the IB way. Hmm. So those conversations would be quite important. The journey that teachers have been through in understanding IB principles and practice are some of the questions that the verification visit team will ask. Also, for both the consultation visit and the verification visit, there is a specific agenda. There are specific stakeholders that the IB would like the visiting team to meet with. And so the school is going to be asked to prepare an agenda based on that. And that includes all stakeholders, everyone who's been involved in the process, including the Board of Governors and the pedagogical leadership team, the support community, parents, students, etc. So it's two days which are intense for both sides, the verification visit team as well as for the school. However, it can be a very enriching journey. Avi, while I've got you there, I'm just wondering if you could shed some light on what happens after the verification visit. At the verification visit, the last meeting will be an exit interview. And this is where the team will present its findings to the school. So they will just be letting you know, based on the standards and practices that we're using, where the school stands with regard to certain standards and practices. So the findings regarding philosophy, the findings regarding the leadership, the findings regarding the resources at the school, and the findings regarding all aspects of teaching and learning. They will not at that point be letting the school know one way or the other you know where they stand with regard to commendations recommendations or matters to be addressed because that's not in the hands of the verification visit team what they will be presenting to the ib is the findings that they have once that's done the visiting team actually has two weeks to submit a report to the ib once it reaches the ib it is then reviewed and then the verification visit a report is provided to the school should there be any areas where the school still does not meet the requirements for authorization, the IB will be asking for further evidence. And there's normally a timeline, normally two weeks, but if the school requires more time, they just have to contact the program relationship managers and that will be granted in order to provide that evidence that we need. Once that's been looked at and closed, there is a little bit of an escalation that takes place at that point, because once there is a matter, there is going to be a general consensus across the IB team that, yes, the evidence is enough for the matter to be closed. Mm -hmm. So it may take a little bit of time for us to get back to you. But once we have the evidence, the school is successfully authorized. And there are just a couple of documentational steps that have to take place after that. But then you're good to go. Fantastic. So it sounds like a highly collaborative partnership sort of model as opposed to an inspection that happens in some other organisations where they're giving the green light for authorisation. There's a lot of consultation that takes place. It highlights the fact that you've got these visitors, as you're talking about, going into schools. You obviously need some very highly trained educators that go into schools and support these verification visits. What are the traits of a great IB educator leading a verification visit for a school? Manita? Yeah, I think this process is really effective because we have these educators and I mm. think it's one of the real strengths of IB programs that we use our community 
in a very consultative way. So all IB educators who are school visitors, they themselves have IB experience for a certain amount of years to train, to be eligible for training. They have to have completed a certain number of years working in IB schools. So they're all very experienced within their unique context. And I think that really does help because it gives you that key of empathy. If you've been through the process of an authorization or an evaluation, you really have empathy with how the coordinator is feeling at that point and with what has gone into it. But you also have the other perspective of, okay, you know what the IB requirements and you know that requirements look different across contexts. So, you know, how this is implemented in one country and another is different. And that, again, is a real strength of the flexibility of the frameworks that we have. So I think educators having that experience prior, being aware of the context and being pedagogical leaders themselves really sets them up in a strong position to do this role. What tips or strategies would you provide to schools just starting off with this process. Avi, if I could start with you. Yeah, sure. I think it comes back to what Monita said right at the beginning about the feasibility study that the school might do before it starts its whole candidacy process, looking to where the school is at this point and where it needs to go for the successful authorization. Sometimes it's not a lot. Sometimes there are particular areas that the school needs to focus on more. For example, with teaching and learning in the diploma program and in the career-related program, we do want to make sure that there are facilities and resources to support the various subjects that are there. There are some health and safety requirements that come up from time to time. There are expectations for collaborative planning, for example, that also come up possibly across all programs. So looking to see, well, where are we right now? What do we provide for our students in our teaching and learning environment now? What may we need to do in the future? And how are we going to get there? Would be just a fabulous starting point and we'll create that consultative conversation with the consultant as well as with the IB as you progress. Thanks, Avi. Marga? It's important for schools to establish their structures early on. So what roles are going to be in place for leadership to support schools in their journey towards authorization. And also, again, communication with the consultant throughout the process and what that plan will look like. The collaborative planning model and the PD model early on and tying that to the action plan from the start. Thanks, Margot. And finally, Manita. To add on to the excellent points that both Avi and Margo have said, I think sustainability is one to look at. There are changes in schools. We know um, schools, not static places. So have a plan for that so that your process doesn't get delayed. If, If someone's leaving, have clear strategies for handover and set up systems so that information is transparently shared collaboratively as well. A reminder, I think, to schools, and this is something where I see schools getting tripped up about our requirements for copyright as well. We have quite stringent ways that you can advertise yourself as a candidate school versus an IB authorized school. And very often schools are not aware of those. And so they advertise themselves incorrectly. So please do look at that. We often provide you with a reminder and with the exact information of how you can advertise yourself as a candidate school. And the last point really is just there are so many resources that the IB provides. So I would advise all schools to set some time to really look through these and organize which ones will be useful to you 
And just as a little plug, as the authorization team, we have actually just finished developing a set of nano support material for authorization. So exactly the questions we've discussed here, we've broken them up into six mini sessions with a bit more detail and references to the documents as well. And those will soon be available to all schools. So those will be good resources for schools going through this process too. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'd like to thank our panel for sharing their insights and expertise. Make sure you subscribe to YB Voices so you'll never miss an episode. Stay tuned for our next instalment.